0: But um, this is Sally Perry, um, and she's going to tell you about what God has been doing in her life through prayer.
1: Our grandson, Jonathan, was two years old. Uh, He came down with leukemia. He was treated for three and a half years. Goodness, the church was praying. We had maybe the very first time he was in He came from the emergency room. The helicopter was clean and ready to go to take him to Chattanooga. I thought that was cool. (laughs) That was already there. And the people that showed up in the emergency room, they filled it was so many people that they moved us to another room in the hospital near the ICU. So we would be ready when he came out. I was in Bible studies and and people there prayed and it. It was just an amazing time. I mean, I felt like when you first get that news, you feel like you're free falling. But I felt like I was caught and secure. God. God meets us in the storm. And I found that to be true. We were in the emergency room and as we were praying, I was praying and I asked God, God, you created him you made him. they are in there severing his neural pathways. Would you put them back together? You are the healer and you're the great physician retain his ability to learn I wanted to know you and Jonathan learned he's writing words all over We walk the neighborhood he has chalk with him. he writes words in every driveway. <laughs> I mean it's just what he does. But yes, he learns. And uh, I'm grateful that God answered that prayer. One time I was staying with him for the week. He had a stomach virus and was just in the hospital. So everything was going good. I asked the doctors if we can go home. And they said, stay one more night. So we did. At four in the morning, the nurse came in and checked him, did her vital signs and he was fine. Between 5 and 5:30 or so. I hear in my head, get up, change his diaper before the doctors make their rounds. And I argued. I said, "We're exhausted. The doctors won't care. You don't wake a sleeping baby." But I heard it a second time and I realized that's not my thought. I got up to change his diaper. And when I pulled the covers back, I saw that his belly was distended. It looked like he was not much pregnant, that big. I ran to the nurse's station. They came back. They ran. They got the doctors in. They came in. They bumped the CT schedule, got him down there. And they found the tear in his intestine, but it was on the inside and not on the outside. So they gave him antibiotics. I was watching, and God, saved his life i've seen god work so many times through prayer in my own life so i want to encourage you to uh, come to the prayer conference november 4th
0: wasn't that so much better than me just telling you to come we're excited to see what God will do in us and through us as we, as a people, go deeper in relationship with Him. Uh, we're gonna open the scriptures together. Um, we'll be jumping through several scriptures, uh, but we'll start in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we're not gonna put the scriptures on the board um, today. I've, I've been trying to emphasize, uh, just bring bring your Bibles. Um, if you don't, pull up your phone. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. Um, but we, I just would love for you to just be focused on, on the Word of God. Um, by way of introduction, I'll tell you about something that happened in September of 2020. It's not in the Bible. Um, September of 2020, the leaders of modern-day Israel, um, as well as the leaders of the United Arab Emirates, in Bahrain, they signed a historic peace agreement brokered by the United States, which the United States was heavily involved with, is at the the White House in Washington, D.C. It was the first time that the UAE and the Bahrain, and Bahrain as as individual nations, recognized Israel's sovereignty as a nation and their right to exist. They opened up diplomatic um, communication between the nations. In the months that followed, a couple other nations, Morocco and Sudan, joined on to these historic, significant peace agreements where Muslim nations and Israel opened up diplomatic ties. There's been kind of some talk about that with all the craziness of our world today, with Israel and Hamas and war and violence, that a few years ago there was actually some hope that maybe some of the Muslim nations in Israel could have some diplomatic ties. I bring that up not because I really want to become a political commentator on Middle East events, but rather because I like to talk about the Bible. And the name of those historic peace agreements is really interesting. And maybe, for some of us, might be significant to what we're talking about today. Because those peace agreements between two Arab nations and then two other Muslim nations that were non-Arab, as well as Israel, they called those historic peace agreements, anybody know? The Abraham Accords. Now why would they do that? The Abraham Accords was because the traditional view is that Jews are descended from Isaac, one son of Abraham, and Arabs are descended from Ishmael, the other son of Abraham. So bringing together the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, that is what they're trying to do in the Abraham Accords. Now, I'll say, um, scripture doesn't say that um, Arabic peoples or Muslims are descended from um, Ishmael, the Jewish historian Josephus is where that idea originated, and Muslims have adopted that idea. It may or may not be true. In fact, if you really look at it, the history, the research behind that, I'm not necessarily convinced that when we look at the struggle that we see today between Jews and Arabs, I don't think it's as simple as saying this is descendants of Isaac and descendants of Ishmael. Muslims claim that, but I'm not sure that's something that Christians... Should affirm if we actually do the research ourselves. But there's no question. There's a lot of intensity there in our current events, and so many will, for good reason, I think, look back to Scripture and say, "What does Scripture tell us about that?" And maybe, and some people think there are answers in our passage of Genesis for what happens there. I, I, I'm going to tell you something a little bit different. I'm, I'm going to. I'm gonna go Pauline in this passage, Pauline as in the Apostle Paul. I'm gonna go with his view of this passage, and I don't think this passage is so much about the debate between Islam and Judaism and then later, Christianity. I think this passage is about grace and works. There's a lot for us to see in the aftermath of that, but we'll go there, okay? I'm going to go through three big passages Genesis 16, Genesis 21, and then Galatians 4. You know that for the last few weeks, we spent the month of September um, talking about people that had face to face encounters with Jesus, encountering God in the person of Jesus in those gospel narratives. That's how we spent September. Uh, October, we're going into Abraham's family, and we're seeing how. Abraham's family encountered God face-to-face multiple times, multiple people in Abraham's family. We did two weeks about um, Abraham and kind of those encounters that focused on Abraham. Last week, we talked about Sarah, where actually Abraham encountered God for a third time, but it was actually for Sarah that was really more a part of the story we looked at last week. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about Hagar, and so as we open the scriptures, we've got three passages We're going to unpack them slowly but thoughtfully, and I'm going to give you two-word summaries of each of the three passages. I'm going to wrap it up together in the end. So that's what we're looking for, two-word summaries that wraps this whole story all up for us. Um, So we'll start in Genesis chapter 16, uh, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's significant. That's our starting point here. Now she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, that being Sarah. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Whoa, what a shift. Didn't didn't really see that coming. Sounds like the story goes the way she wants it to. But then all of a sudden, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the the servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai, The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore she called the well. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we'll start here, Genesis chapter 16, and we'll, we'll unpack it. A few notes as we go. Uh, first, in verse 1, we see the problem, the tension here, is that Sarah has borne Abram no children. Why is that significant? Well, we kind of talked about this last week, because last week we actually talked, we're going a little out of order, okay? Because last week we talked about when Isaac was born, and the, the laughter, and all the good news of Isaac being born. But we're going out of order now because we're going to get to Genesis 21, which happens after our passage from last week. So we're kind of looking at the story of Hagar as a whole picture today. But the problem in this story right now at this point is that Sarai has not borne Abram a wife, even though God had promised that she would. And how long have they been waiting? We know from this passage exactly how long. Uh, verse 3 says 10 years. 10 years since they got to Canaan. Before they left to go to Canaan, God promised, Abram, you will have a son. Well, then they took some time, went to Canaan, got to Canaan, and have been there 10 years, and still no son. Sarah is barren. Sarah cannot have children. So it is a difficult burden for Sarah to carry. And so she says, she comes up with an idea, a human solution. That's, a, that's significant to this whole story of the three passages we're weaving together. This is a human solution. She says, I shall obtain, is her wording in verse two. As she says to Abram, take my servant, Hagar, perhaps I shall obtain a child through Hagar. She comes up with this idea, okay? Let's have a child for Abram through Hagar, but because she's my servant, the child becomes my son. That's the way the deal worked. It's kind of confusing when you think about it. But but when you look at the language carefully and understand sort of the ancient Near Eastern context that they were in, this was not necessarily uncommon for a man to have multiple wives or for a man to take his wife's servant as an additional wife that's sort of a lower status wife. That doesn't make it right, doesn't make it godly, doesn't make it righteous. In fact, I think I said this last week, anytime this happens in the scripture, it ends badly. That should tell you something. Scripture doesn't necessarily spell out for you this is the problem, but if you read the passage in context, you start to see Abram's sowing a lot of his own problems into his decisions here. He's kind of reaping what he sows, and there's a lot in the story of Hagar that we might miss where it shows you sort of Abram's own unfaithfulness is a part of this problem and how he gets there. But the situation is that the, the child that is born through Hagar and Abram is to be Sarah's child. Even though Hagar is now another wife of Abram, she in verse 4 retains the status of servant. So she is a wife in verse 3, Hagar is, but she's a servant still in verse 4. Sounds super weird to us, not necessarily weird in ancient Near Eastern context. She is a lower tier wife. Sarah's still the boss, Sarah's still in charge, Hagar is still her servant. But the problem is, Sarah comes up with a human solution. Abram listens to who? Sarah. And the language of listening is significant in the book of Genesis and in the Old Testament. Because what has Abram been doing up to this point? Listening to the voice of God. So that phrase that we see here, Abram, in verse 2, listened to the voice of Sarai is a way of showing you, the reader, he chose the voice of Sarai over the promise of God. Because earlier, God had told him, Abram, do this, and he listened to the voice of God. And it is credited to him as as righteousness, the New Testament tells us. But this time, instead of listening to the voice of God and remembering the promise of God, he listens to the voice of Sarai. Because God promised this 10 years ago, and they haven't seen it come to fruition yet. So when the child is born, Hagar then looks down on, according to verse four, looks down on Sarai. She thinks, hey, you know, I'm a lower to your wife. I'm a servant, but I've got the child she doesn't. And that's when Sarai says, nope, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth it. I don't want that woman's child to become my child in my house. Abram, we got to do something about this. And so what does Abram do? Again, abdicates Sarah, I, I got it. I'm sorry. This was your idea in the beginning. But you're right, you're right. It's all my fault. So you do to her what you want. And it says, according to Scripture, Sarah mistreats her. Enough to where a pregnant woman ran away. The, Hagar was not sent away. She ran away. She ran away while pregnant. Meaning the mistreatment wasn't Sarah looking at Hagar with contempt likely physical abuse, something she made Hagar's life so miserable that Hagar fled. Let me ask you a question though. Maybe this is part of the passage you've never thought about before. Where did Hagar come from? She came from Egypt. There's something about Egypt in the scriptures in in the Old Testament that is so significant. There's, there, Egypt is a major player throughout Old Testament history. you got to know something about Egypt to understand. You know the major redemptive story of the Old Testament is God calling his people, miraculously providing his people an exit out of slavery in Egypt. But they get there by choice. Egypt is a provision for the nation in a time of famine. There's lots of stories of Egypt in the Old Testament. But what about Abram's life? Three weeks ago, I told you about the original time that God showed up to Abram. And God spoke to Abram. Genesis 12. God speaks to Abram. He calls him out. He gives him a promise. He says, do this. Go to Canaan. Ten years before our passage here today. Genesis 16. Ten years after Genesis 12, we're told. And what happens at the end of Genesis 12? There's a famine in Canaan. Beginning of Genesis 12, faithful Abram leaves Modern day Babylon, or what what became Babylon, not modern day, but what became Babylon later, he leaves that area, Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, leaves that area to go to Canaan, the promised land, modern day Israel. But then there's a famine, so he goes where? Egypt. What does he do when he gets to Egypt? Faithful ambassador of God. He walks into Egypt and he says, Sarah, wife, Sarah, you're beautiful. You're also my half sister. So let's play up the sister part and let's not talk about the wife part. And at the end of chapter 12, a crazy story, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, takes Sarah, Abram's wife, the wife of promise, into his house as a wife. And then it goes bad for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh eventually recognizes it's going bad for me because, and whether that is Crops or livestock or something. In some way, God is showing judgment on Pharaoh's household because Pharaoh has taken another man's wife into his house. This is Genesis 12. And then Pharaoh's like, Abram, you lied to me, get out of here. But here are the servants and livestock and all of this stuff that I'm giving to you, get out. First it came as sort of a dowry for Sarah because there was an exchange there. Pharaoh took Sarah as his wife and gave, made Abram rich, basically. But with that came what? Servants. So where did Hagar come from? Sarah and Abram came from the opposite direction of Egypt. Hagar very likely did not come from Ur of the Chaldeans. Hagar very likely was there as a part of the household of Abram and Sarah because of what? Abram's disobedience in the first place. How does Sarah end up with an Egyptian slave? Because she was once the wife of the Egyptian ruler. And then when she was sent out of the house of the Egyptian ruler, she took her servants with her. That's what Genesis 12 says. So here's Abram's faithfulness baked into this account, Faith, faithlessness, baked into this account to where it's like, the, when Moses is writing this record for us, and we see that Hagar's an Egyptian, it should send a, send a flag up into our minds like, why is there an Egyptian there? Oh yeah, because Abram once chose a human solution. I need, I need Pharaoh to protect me over the divine promise. Sarah is my wife through whom God's gonna bless me and give me a child. And so this is not the first time that we have this problem of Abram choosing human solution over God's providence and provision. So it's significant here. It's also significant as to why Sarah had this idea in the first place. Because how faithful had her husband been to her? Well, he gave her away to another man. So there's something there that Sarah just doesn't see this as a big deal. Here, take take Hagar, make her her your wife. Oh, she's pregnant, let's get rid of her, let's mistreat her. Very harsh, very, very hard story. But we're here to talk about how God encounters Hagar, the angel of the Lord, who I've told you before, I believe the angel of the Lord is God himself. And this is another passage where four times We are told by Moses, by the author of Genesis, that the angel of the Lord is talking to Hagar, verse 7, 9, 10, and 11. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And who does Hagar think she talked to at the end of the story? God himself. The angel of the Lord said, 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 and Hagar says, God has spoken to me. God has seen me. So in some way, the angel of the Lord is God himself himself appearing to Hagar in her distress, in her brokenness, and and he says, turn back. It's not really a a good message, honestly. Turn back. Submit to the woman that abused you. I've got a bigger plan. Hagar doesn't know the end of the story, knows that that in some way Ishmael is going to be blessed, but she's also told Ishmael's going to be a wild donkey of a man. I'm not sure I would want a son like that, but for whatever reason, Hagar acts in faith, responds, and goes back. And she gives God a name. Yahweh, this Egyptian woman, gives God a name. Yahweh is his name that we know, but she gives him a new name, El Roy, the God who sees. And then she names the well Beer Lahai Roy. I have encountered the living one and the living one has seen me. In fact, the the literal name of the well, the well of the living one who sees me. She believes she saw God at that well. She named the well based on that encounter, and she named God the one who sees. So two-word summary of this exchange between God and Hagar. God sees. From that, we'll build Genesis 21 into the story. Fast forward a few years. 16 to be exact, 16 years later because um, Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born, was 100 when Isaac was born, and then Genesis 21 picks up the story as Isaac is being weaned. So that's probably two, maybe three years after he was born, okay? So we're 16 years after Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. Isaac is about 16 years old, or sorry, Ishmael is about 16 years old. Isaac is recently born, and there's drama in the household of Abraham again. By the way, um, God changes their names from Abram and Abraham, um, and from Sarai to Sarah. I'm not going to confuse myself. I'm just going to use Abraham and Sarah. Thank you. All right, Genesis 21. You can, you, if you want to switch back and forth, you're welcome to. Um, but Genesis 21, verse 8, the child was weaned. That's Isaac, okay? Isaac, two to three years old, he's weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. What's wrong with laughing? Well, we talked about that last week. There's good laughter, there's bad laughter. Abraham good laughed at God's promise in Genesis 17. Sarah bad laughed at God's promise in Genesis 20, and so there's a way to laugh in faith and and belief, and there's a way to laugh in derision or unbelief or mocking, and so it seems in this passage that it's more this mocking sort. Ishmael has done something wrong to mock his little half-brother Isaac. Now, just before this passage, a year before this happens, God had encountered Abraham again and said, you're having a baby in a year. And Abraham had actually said, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. So, just a couple years before, three, I guess, the weaning time. So, three years before this, one year before Isaac was born, God and Abraham are having this conversation and Abraham says, God, can't you just accept Ishmael? So, When Ishmael was 13 years old, Abraham still thought, maybe God's going to accept Ishmael. So Ishmael was raised as Abram's only son. Ishmael was raised as a child of privilege. Ishmael was raised basically as a prince because Abraham was wealthy, had lots of servants, had actually enough servants to create his own army, we see in these passages. So Abram was a ruler over a group of people. And Isaac was the prince who was about to inherit it all, and was raised as such. Well, then this little boy, Isaac, was born, and Ishmael recognizes, wait a second, I guess I'm not going to be the ruler, the heir anymore, and he laughs in some way. So Sarah, again, has something to say to Abraham. Verse 10, um, Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of the slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. No sharing between Isaac and Ishmael. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, showing he loved, he had some concern, care for Ishmael. He had walked with him for, at this point now, 16 years. God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, Do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Notice this is very different. There was the language of faith in Genesis 16. Abram listened to the voice of his wife over the voice of God. In this one, Abram said, it wasn't good the last time I listened to Sarah about Hagar, so I probably shouldn't do it again. He was distressed, he loved Ishmael, God said, you know what? Trust me. Listen to your wife. Trust me. So Abram rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, gave her the child, sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. She went away and sat opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Uh, Pause there. When you read this passage out of context, you think that this is a young child. So then it's confusing to you probably when I describe it as this. And I say he's probably 16 years old by this time. And I'll I'll simply say, one of the things that was interesting to me to reflect on, um, there is a sense in which Ishmael was raised as a prince as a child of privilege, as an heir to a wealthy throne. And his mother was a slave. So why is the boy somehow less rugged than the mother? That, because she was a slave, and he was a child of privilege. He is not prepared for this journey into the wilderness, limited water. So it does seem that the 16-year-old boy is fading faster than his mother, but it probably has to do with the way they had lived their lives up until this point. So so he's sitting under the shade of a large bush, because he's 16, probably a big bush. And she's away, saying, this boy's not going to make it. And she lifted up her voice and wept. But look at verse 17. This is different, again, than Genesis 16. In Genesis 16, it's just Hagar. And God sees Hagar. God listens to Hagar. Look at verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. This time, God's not so much hearing Hagar, but he's hearing Ishmael. This is significant. God is hearing Ishmael, the guy outside the covenant of promise, right? Isaac is the promised child, but God is listening to Ishmael. This is so radically significant for the way you interpret the Old Testament, the covenants, all of that. God is listening to the voice of an Egyptian woman. God is listening to the voice of a son who is illegitimate in the covenant promises of God. God is listening and caring. God is moving. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, verse 17, verse 18. Up, lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand. I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes she saw a well of water. Last time, she was at a well of water when God met her there. This time, she thought she was in the middle of nowhere, desolate, complete disaster. And after interacting with God, God opens her eyes, and there is a well of water. She went, filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy. He grew up, he lived in the wilderness, became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. By the Lord, God, Yahweh, the king of Israel, the king of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, hearing the voice of Ishmael, it tells us something. It tells us that God's grace extends to outsiders. God's grace extends to outsiders, and that was there in the beginning. God's grace is always extended to outsiders. Though his covenant, though his primary working has been inside the nation of Israel throughout the Old Covenant and in the church in the New Covenant, God works with outsiders. He listens to the voice of outsiders so that they might find salvation, relief, and hope in him as well. Ishmael's name means, we saw in the last passage, God listens. And here we see, in verse 17, God listens to Ishmael. Chapter 16, God sees Hagar. Chapter 21, God listens to Ishmael. God reveals to this woman a well, a well that was previously unavailable to her, previously unseen by her. So for the second time in the course of a few years, 16 years, God has met this foreign woman at a well. 16, 21, And later, Jesus does the same thing, right? Jesus has a story too about meeting a foreign woman who's been rejected by society, who has no hope and no future. And Jesus condescends to come and sit with her at a well and ask her for water and speak to her about who he is and the type of water that he can offer to her. And these stories in the biblical narrative, they have to be woven together to see that God is telling a story to us about the way he works with people. He sees people. He listens to people. And he responds. And Hagar has two hopeless moments in the wilderness. And God shows up both times. And he gives her a promise. "Yeah, I'm going to build something out of Ishmael. It's not. It's not like what he's building out of Isaac tells Abram that um, in verse, uh, verse 12 and 13, he says, Abram, every promise I gave you is going to be fulfilled in Isaac. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named, in verse 12, a phrase that the New Testament picks up on a couple of times, actually. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named, God says. But Ishmael's going to have his own nation. But it's not necessarily a covenant of promise. It's not salvation for the descendants of Ishmael. It's just he's going to be a great man. He's going to have people that come from him. But the covenant of promise is Isaac. So two two two-word summaries. God sees in Genesis 16. God listens in Genesis 21. Now, what does Paul have to say? this passage has confused you and you're not sure what you're supposed to take from it, what your application is yet, let's see if Paul can help us out. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Let's see, listen, before we go there, okay? Let's just see. Let's try to predict. What's Paul gonna say here? How's Paul gonna make sense of this? Do you have any idea of how Paul is gonna put that gospel bow on this crazy story where it seems like the chosen people of God are really super wicked Because that's the reality, right? Abram is not acting in faith. Sarah is not acting in faith. But they're still receiving the promise from God. So where's the gospel bow here that the new covenant is going to give us? Let's look. Verse 21, Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Just read that. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Thanks, Paul. But what? These two women who suffered went through great trauma in this whole thing. And now Paul comes in and says, oh, their lives are to be interpreted allegorically. And listen, let's just say that's how scripture works. Real people, real lives, real suffering, real pain, and God is telling his story above and beyond what's happening in their lives. God is telling a greater story that Hagar and Sarah could not have imagined, Abraham could not have imagined, Isaac and Ishmael could not have imagined the story that God was telling here. But it's really simple. It's actually a really simple story. I'm gonna tell you what Paul said and try to make it simple. What Paul says is Abraham had, had a choice right in front of them. God's made a promise. Abraham, are you gonna embrace that promise through works or through promise? Are you gonna embrace God's future of being a great nation and filling the land and having all these descendants? Are you gonna do it on your terms or on God's terms? Are you gonna do it through effort and human ingenuity or through waiting? through the difficulty, through the silence, through the years in between all these visions. See, we think it's super great to be in Abraham's family because look at how often God shows up and just talks to him. But there's a 10-year gap. There's a 14-year gap. There's all these gaps where make make you question like, I'm 99 now. Is this promise really gonna happen? Abraham's choice was go the human way. The human way is, listen to Sarah, have a child with Hagar, build your nation through Hagar, and that's going to be the fulfillment of the promise. Look at what you already got. God said he was going to bless you, and then you went to Egypt, you were unfaithful, and who blessed you? Pharaoh did. Another example Now, did God then bless him and and make those livestock fruitful and, and make those servants expand and all that? Sure, absolutely. Really, Abraham's blessing came from God, not Pharaoh. But you see, it's a pattern of Abraham's life. God's way, the human way. And brothers and sisters, the same choice is here for us. God's way, human way. The human way, according to Galatians 4, is to find your own solutions to life. You think, this is what I want my life to look like. This is is what is good and right. This is what the good life is, so I'm going to pursue it this way. Abraham says, the good life means descendants and kingdoms and and many people that come and that are bearing my name. So, sure, God made a promise, but he hasn't followed through with that promise yet. So maybe I'm just going to try my solution. Hagar and Ishmael. That's the human way. Sarah and Isaac, though. It's God's way. It's long. It's hard. requires a lot more patience. A lot of confusion. You can figure out the human way. We know how the human way works. That story makes sense. But waiting 10 years, and then 14 years, and then just the next chapter, we're seeing Abraham walk up a hill with Isaac, ready to kill him in a sacrifice. All because... God cares more about Abraham's obedience and faith and trust in him. And God is leading him along, showing him this is what it looks like to choose the promise, to choose me. Human initiative only gets human results. Following following the best of man's wisdom gets you results that are attained through man's wisdom. But the option for Abraham to build his line through grace or works was right in front of him, and he chose works, and it went badly. And so then God said, no, no, no. I'm going to help you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to bring in this path through grace. What do we do about this? Do we rely upon divine grace and promise? Do we rely upon human initiative? True freedom in Christ only comes through divine action, not through human effort. True grace only comes by choosing to embrace the promises of God and embrace the work of God right in front of us and to choose grace because the God who sees and the God who listens, the God who saw Hagar at the well and the God who listened to the voice of Ishmael under the bush and the God who is, is the God who is now calling you, choose grace. Not human effort. Choose to relate to me. Choose to connect with me as children of promise and not children of the flesh. Romans 9, Paul quotes this language of being a child of Isaac because children of Abraham are children of Abraham by faith now. Children of Isaac are children of Isaac by faith now. And so what Paul is telling us, we are children of Abraham, we are descendants of Isaac. We bear the name of Abraham and Isaac if we choose grace over human effort, over the law. Sarah is fallen, is an imperfect example. Abraham is fallen in an imperfect example. But they are representing to us the line of grace of trusting in God's promise. And Hagar, even though, and I'm just going to say it like it is, even though Hagar is more righteous and right than Sarah and Abraham in much of these stories. Just like Pharaoh was in chapter 12, by the way. Sometimes the Egyptians, they're actually the ones that have a little bit more character than God's own people that God is using. But that's not the point of the story. God is choosing to use people that, whose faith falls short. And That's the same way with us. God chooses to use people whose faith falls short. Our obedience falls short. And he tells us, stop choosing human action, choose grace instead. Our message for today. Six words. God sees. God listens. Choose grace. That's the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah. That's how it all boils down. God sees you. And the discipline of remembering the places that God has sees you, has seen you cultivates for us a great hope. The discipline of remembering the lowest points in our life when we feel th- like we have nowhere to turn and God has shown up. And I think so many of us have that. that was, that's what was so beauty, beautiful about listening to Sally today. The moment where it feels like all is lost, God sees you. God's there. He listens and he cares. That's the hope we need. That sometimes when we go 16 years before stories of God showing up and seeing us and listening to us, we discipline ourselves to remember God sees. And God listens. And in this passage, God listens to the foreigners. God sees the foreigners. God listens to the foreigners. One of the reasons why I kind of feel like oversimplifying the the modern day Muslim Jew, um, uh, war and hatred. I feel like it's an oversimplification to talk about Isaac and Ishmael. Is I think, I think that some people use that and say, well, Ishmael's a wild, wild donkey of a man. But God is reaching Arabs all around the world. God is reaching Arabic peoples all around the world. They're sinners. They're often violent. They're often selfish much like any other people group, without the provision of God, and without the witness of God in his presence, and his witness within that people group. And it's so beautiful to be a part of this church, where we get to hear stories about what God is doing around the nations, around the world, and to know a man in this church that has said, you know what, I'm gonna learn Arabic, and I'm gonna learn Arabic so I can read the Bible in Arabic with Muslims. I'm gonna sit down, and read the Bible in Arabic to Muslims because Muslims need Jesus, because Muslims need grace, and God is listening to those that call out for him. And so there's no way, there's no way to God without the shed blood of Jesus and without faith in Jesus, repentance and new life that can come through him. But that path, that way is available to every people, to every nation, because God is listening. Such a beautiful story when you see it. God sees the former, God listens to the former. And God asks us, are you gonna be a child of works, or a child of the promise? Are you gonna work your way into God's kingdom, or are you gonna receive his grace for new life? We've been talking for weeks about these encounters with God, and maybe you're one that's sitting there thinking, yeah, I wish I could be me. I wish I could be Nicodemus and talk to Jesus face to face. I wish I could be Abraham and whenever I mess up, God just shows up and tells me what I did wrong. I wish I could have those face-to-face interactions. But the truth is that God does still meet with us in times of suffering and weakness. But we are so worried that we try to work our way out of it. We try to work our way through it. We think God's gonna be more pleased if we clean ourselves up a little bit and come to him once we figure some of our stuff out. God's not waiting for you to clean yourself up a little bit. God is waiting for you to come in desperation. Come at your last rope. Don't try to work your way there. Choose the path of grace. As the band comes up to close our service in worship, I'm gonna ask you, have you chosen the path of grace yourself? If you have, then this closing section of the service is all about gratitude it's all about let's raise our hands let's worship together and let's worship what God has done for us and in us because God has seen us God has listened and we have responded to the offer of grace and we are his children and those people that embrace the path of gratitude this morning let's go out and keep it going keep the kingdom moving to show other people that God sees you, God listens to you, and God's giving you the offer of grace. But if you're here this morning and you've seen the baptism and you've you've heard the passage and you you know that, well, God is offering something, but I'm not sure I've ever been there, I've ever quite received it, I'm just gonna ask you to come and find me and receive grace. Choose grace today. The altar is open for anyone to pray. Anyone to pray for the lost, to pray for the hurting, to pray for somebody you love, to pray for for stuff going on around the world, the altar is open to prayer.